Sometimes in the study of a book of the Bible, we're uh, continuing our study in the book of Romans, but sometimes it's good just really quickly to take a big 30,000-foot view again because you can kind of get lost in the weeds. You can get lost in the details. You can kind of start to be, begin to wonder, like, okay, why is Paul just continually <laughs> repeating himself? Because you kind of get to this point in the book, you're like, okay, we got it. We get it. Understand, but and I want to I want to remind you, and I want to remind us that Paul viewed his ministry um, very similar to a master builder, and he he realized that what he was building was not uh, a little shack in the back that wouldn't be exposed to tornado like winds and would just be um, sitting back there as a temporary structure. What what Paul was in the process of building was a superstructure called the church. It was the church that Jesus Christ, while on earth, said. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Paul, as a wise master builder, wanted to lay foundations that could support a superstructure. And so he took great care and great time to do that. And as we look at the book of Romans, remember that one of the purposes for Paul writing the book of Romans was to record a systematic and detailed presentation of his gospel. This is important because as he begins to teach on the Christian life, if you and I don't have a proper foundation, we're not going to be able to build on top of it. And this is why Paul is going to such great length, almost painful lengths, to really prove out what we've looked at so far. And that is that God is righteous. You and I are not righteous. We need God's righteousness, and he's provided righteousness in the gospel. And he's going through great lengths to say that the way that you get the righteousness of God is through faith. Because if you come to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, and the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, and the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, and the eighth chapter, and so on and so forth, and you still think, after Paul's done, that you can get to heaven by asking Jesus into your heart, you've missed the whole message of the book of Romans. If you still think that you can get to heaven by committing your life to Christ or getting, believing and being baptized and being communicized and being catechized or whatever eyes you want to add to it. If you still think that's the method by which you get God's righteousness, then you've missed the point. And see, Paul is a wise master builder. He is preaching the gospel to believers at Rome because he doesn't want to get into the truths of Romans 6 seven and eight and so on until he knows that the foundation has been laid so that he can build on it like a wise master builder. And so as we get into chapter four, chapter four really could probably be preached in one Sunday. It's a, it's a pretty simple message. And the message is this, you get saved when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's always been that way through the old Testament. But I want you to know that Paul is hitting all sorts of different angles here to prove not only to his Jewish readers that they can be saved by faith and that their forefathers were saved by faith in Christ, but he's also now convincing Gentile readers that we get saved the same way. See, you don't have to become Jewish to get saved. You don't have to come to a Jewish ritual like circumcision to get saved. You don't have to obey the law to get saved because even Jews didn't get saved that way. And that's going to be his point here as we dive back into Romans chapter 4. 
And we're going to look at God's accounting system. Remember I told you last week that this, this word logizomai accounted, God wrote it down on your account. It's a financial term that it's used 11 times in the, book, in the fourth chapter of the book of Romans. It's used 11 times. And the section that we're going to look at today, verses 6 through 12, that word is used five of the 11 times. How does God account or write righteousness on the account of man? Don't you want to know that? Don't we want to be sure of that? If that's what it takes to get to heaven, don't you know, want to know what God says you need in order to be credited righteousness to your account? And this is the passage that we look at today. And so um, turn with me to Romans chapter 4 and, and really starting in verse 6. We're going to see that the first words in verse 6 are the words just as David. So we're, we're, he's building off of what he just said about Abraham. And remember what he said about Abraham last week, that in the area of salvation, hard work does not pay off. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot try to get to heaven. In fact, what does God say specifically and directly? You need to stop working, stop trying, and start trusting in the work that Jesus Christ performed on your behalf. That's the message that Abraham understood. Verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted. There's God's accounting program for righteousness. Verse 6, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And so we see this concept in verse 6, just as David, tying in David as well. And David's going to be the second Old Testament example that Paul gives, basically proving out, hitting it, hitting it from a different angle, that nobody's ever been saved by doing good works. Nobody's ever been saved by trying harder. Everyone who's ever been saved in the history of mankind has been saved in one way, and that's when they've put their faith in God's solution to the sin problem. And so we're going to see this in David. Now, why does he use these two men as examples? Well, remember that Abraham and David were pillars of the Old Testament faith, but I believe he uses them for a different, uh, a different reason. See, Abraham did not even have the Mosaic law when he was justified or declared righteous. Abraham was not even circumcised when he was declared righteous. He was justified or declared righteous when he put his faith in God, in his word, in his solution for sin's problem. But what about David? David, in contrast, did have the Mosaic law. David, in contrast, was circumcised when he got saved because those things had already been enacted for the Jewish people. And guess what? David was justified or declared righteous the same way Abraham was. And this is Paul's point, I believe, in bringing these two men up. And so what we're going to see is David's going to describe what he calls the, the happiness of men, the blessedness of men being justified or declared righteous in this way, by faith alone in Christ alone. I love what the Amplified Version says here when he says that, that they're blessed. Um, it goes on to say that they're blessed and happy. They are men to be envied. Wow. Have you ever met somebody, by the way? Have you ever talked to somebody that didn't know for sure? that their sins were forgiven? Have you ever met somebody like that? You ever talked to somebody that's not a believer who, who may think that you get to heaven based on your good works? That person is not to be envied. And I'll tell you why. They, they don't envy themselves because they're always concerned about whether or not they've done enough 
to get them there. They don't live a life of peace. They live a life of worry because they don't know for sure. And so blessed and happy and to be envied is the man who knows, based on the testimony of the word of God, that their sins have been forgiven. And that is a blessed place. And this is what David writes about. In fact, um, I I really love what he he says there in in verse 6 because Paul says uh, that he describes the blessedness of the man to whom the Lord imputes. And there's our accounting word, again, righteousness. And notice that last phrase, it is a part from works. We have to get that into our head when we preach the gospel. It is a part from works. It's a part from works to get saved. It's a part from works to stay saved. If you get saved by grace, it's doing something that you didn't earn or deserve in an unmeritorious way. You don't, get, you don't stay saved by doing works. It's a gift when you receive it. It's a gift 20 years after you receive it. Salvation is a free gift. Salvation is completely free. Why is it free? Because Jesus paid for it all. He did it all. He finished the work. And so that's the message that we celebrate when we look at the gospel. In fact, when when you look at God's accounting system, he will write down on your ledger righteousness that you could never get on your own the moment you put your faith in what Jesus did for you, that finished work on the cross where he died for your sins and rose again. That's how God accounts it. And if, I, and if I came to you today and I said, look, don't file your taxes yet. I know a loophole in the IRS tax code that can get you $5,000. They will account that you earn and deserve $5,000. Who wouldn't take me up on that offer? And in the same way, if I can tell you how God, the God of the universe, can take a sinner like you, a, a person who makes mistakes, a person who fails, a person who is not proud of everything that you've done in your life, and I can tell you how God can take you and account righteousness to your account, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't you take that offer? That's an eternal life proposition that you'll never have to pay for your sins and that you'll spend eternity in relationship and fellowship with God. Who wouldn't take that offer? What a beautiful message. And blessed, happy, to be envied is the man that understands that message. In fact, if you introduce works, notice that phrase, it's apart from works. You've got to stop working. But if you introduce, introduce works into the equation, you introduce uncertainty into the equation. Even if it was something simple, like if there was a big button up here, and there's no ejection button up here, so you're here until I'm done. But if there was a big ejection button up here, a big button up here, and God said, all you got to do to go to heaven is you got to hit that button every decade on January 1st, right at 1201 a.m. All you got to do every 10 years is hit that button. You know, I might get it the first six or seven decades, but I'm going to forget. I can't even remember to take the trash out at my house, let alone push a button for salvation. If there was one thing I had to do to get to heaven, I just introduced uncertainty into the whole mix. See, God doesn't want you to be uncertain. Why not? Because he took care of it all. He, he personally took care of it all. Jesus paid it all. So there's no uncertainty. It's got to be apart from works. Otherwise, if it had any kind of work involved, we would screw it up. We wouldn't do it right. We would forget. We would take it lightly whatever you want to, and then we would take credit for it on top of it, which is just a shocker in some ways and not in others. But we see that it's got to be apart from work. So what does David say? Well, David, uh, in verses seven through eight, is he is going to quote us from Psalm 
32. Paul's going to quote what David wrote in Psalm 32. And he's going to say three things about this blessed man, this person, uh, man or woman who has found that they can be credited, accounted righteousness by God simply through faith. Verse 7 and 8 says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So again, Paul is, is quoting David from Psalm 32, and he's going to say three things about the man who is justified or declared righteous by God from faith. See, even David understood this. A Jew under law, a Jew circumcised, was not trusting in his possession of the law to get him to heaven. He was not trusting in his, uh, the skin that was cut off, a foreskin that was cut off when he was eight days old. He wasn't trusting in that to get him to heaven. He wasn't trusting the fact that he was Abraham's seed to get him to heaven. He wasn't even trusting in the fact that he was the king of Israel to get him to heaven. He wasn't trusting in any of that stuff. He was trusting in God. He was trusting in God's provision. And so he writes this faith, righteousness, understanding all the way back in Psalm 32. And so the first thing he's going to say in Psalm 32 or in verse 7 is he's going to say, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And I, the reason I've got this picture up there is because the word forgiven means to, to dismiss, to, to push away, to push out, to, to dismiss, to send forth, to send away, just like this little guy is probably sending his twin brother out that cat door. But we see the, the first reason or the first way that this man is blessed, who understands faith righteousness, is their lawless deeds have been sent away, have been dismissed. Because also, uh, just a, a quick technical point, because this is in the aorist tense, which is a point in time action has been accomplished. It's past tense, it's already happened. Indicates that when a person puts their faith in Christ, their sins are sent away, dismissed, completely forgiven at a point in time. That means that God is not going to bring up sin to you again in the, in the area of eternal salvation. doesn't bring it back up. Those have been forgiven. Those have been dismissed. Those have been pushed away. And so we've got to understand that our sins and their penalty are dismissed at the point in time a person is justified by God through faith. This means that even if you sin, after you believe Jesus has died for those sins, there's no penalty left to be paid because Jesus paid it all. Did Jesus die for all your sins? Yes, we would theologically say yes. The Bible clearly teaches that. Does that mean he died for a sin you're going to commit 30 years from now? Yes, that fits in the category of all. Very simply and logically, he's paid the penalty for all sins. So David understood this, and he describes this blessed man in this way, that the, his lawless deeds are forgiven. The second way that he describes this man in verse 7 is a, is a man whose sins are covered. He says covered, meaning to, to cover over. Uh, metaphorically used of forgiveness of sins or to pardon, especially in the Old Testament time, um, because remember during the Old Testament time that sin was covered by an atonement covering. It was a substitutionary death of an animal. And it just simply covered sin. It didn't take away sin. 
It was a temporary covering. Why was it temporary? Because it was pointing forward to the one who would completely pay the penalty, the one who would completely take away sin. And so we see David in his uh, understanding of the day was, was, was accurate. In fact, I love what the Amplified Version says here. It says, blessed is the man who, whose sin is covered up and completely buried. I love it. It's just got this finality to it. God, looking ahead to what Jesus Christ would do in taking away sins, could declare someone righteous if they were trusting in God's provision for sin. And then the Old Testament time, it was this atonement covering for the animal. We learn from the Old Testament that the, the animal's blood did not take away sin. It simply covered it. But we also learn in John one twenty nine that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who came to take up and carry away the sin of the world. And so Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 tells us the same thing as we just kind of read through that. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, if the, if the offering of the animals could have sufficed and provided final payment, why did they keep offering them? Well, because they didn't take away sin. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And notice this next phrase, for it is not possible. That would, you could substitute the word impossible in there. That the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. But you know what can take away sins? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, the Lamb of God and his sacrifice can take away your sins. And see, that's the blessedness of the man who understands God's accounting system. And then I think you're going to love this next point. I like it. (laughs) Verse 8 says this. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, We've been talking about God's accounting system where God credits or writes down righteousness on your account. There's a different aspect to his accounting system that David brings out here. Not only will the Lord account righteousness to your account, but guess what else he doesn't write down on your account or he takes away? Sin. Same word impute is is our word logizomai. So not only will the Lord put down on your ledger righteousness, but he will not put down or reckon to your account sin and its penalty. In fact, Paul was so emphatic about this, and, and David, as he spoke it, that he uses a Greek double negative here. And this is important because this is significant, because this is not how they, they did everything. A lot, they can, you can negate words in the Greek with one of those two words, ou may. You can just do it with ou, or you can just do it with may. When you put them together, it's not like English. You know, English, if you have a double negative, it makes a positive. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody that speaks in double negatives. It's really hard to <laughs> kind of figure out where they're going. It's like, you know, there's no way to do nothing about this. What? Does that mean we can't do something or we can do? You know, and, and that's a double negative in the English. Not that way in Greek. What it means in, in Greek is it's an emphatic way to say it will never, no, not ever happen. In other words, I'm telling you the truth, and I, and I am guaranteeing you this will never, no, not ever happen. To whom the Lord shall never, no, not ever, impute sin to your account or write down sin 
on your ledger when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. So in man's justification, not only is righteousness recorded on our ledger, but sin and its consequences are removed from our ledger to never appear again. How's that for security? How's that for just resting in the finished work of Christ, knowing that it's all been taken care of? It just causes worship, I hope, to spring up from your soul, to know what he's done and the fullness of what he's accomplished. It's incredible. And so we move on now. In fact, what Paul is going to do is he's going to move back to Abraham. And he's going to talk about, now, we're talking about this beautiful thing about being declared righteous by faith. But who can be justified by faith? Because all he's using up to this point is Jewish examples. So the Gentile might think, wait a minute, do the Jews have this monopoly on justification and forgiveness? I mean, all you're bringing up is all these these Jewish examples. And the Jew is probably sitting back and say, well, wait a minute, I, I know what you're saying, Paul. But, but surely circumcision helps. I mean, come on. You, you can't tell me that circumcision has no value. I mean, I get believe in Jesus. I'm okay with that. But isn't it a believe in Jesus plus circumcision? Come on, Paul. That, that's got to be in there. And so Paul is anticipating this argument from both sides. And so he goes on to say in verse 9 uh, and 10, simply this. Does this blessedness, this um, this position to be envied, the, the man who's justified by faith has his sins forgiven. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? That's a synonym for a Jewish person. Or upon the uncircumcised also. That's a synonym for a Gentile person. For we say that faith was accounted, there's our accounting word again, to Abraham for righteousness. Now, notice what Paul is going to do here in verse 10. He's going to set up his argument Because he says this, how then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And so you see, Paul is anticipating a question now. When do you get circumcised? Is it just Jews that get, uh, or when do you get justified? Is it just Jews that get justified? Don't you have to be circumcised before you can be justified? And he's talking about timing. And so some might now think that justification by faith is only for the Jew. Or since Paul is using Abraham as an example, some of his Jewish audience may have overlooked the timing of Abraham's. Well, of course he was justified. He was circumcised. They might've thought, of course he's declared righteous. He was Jewish. And, And Paul is reminding them that Abraham did nothing praiseworthy. He contributed to his righteousness in no way, not even through a ritual that God had ordained. And so he is kind of working through this argument. <clears throat> now, timing is everything in the area of justification, especially for Abraham, since um, Paul is using him as his primary example. And the timing is everything. And the timing is simply this. The Bible teaches that Abraham was accounted righteousness when he put his faith in God. But now the question becomes, did that happen before or after he was circumcised? Really easy uh, answer to that question because all you have to do is flip back to Genesis and you see that Abraham was declared righteous by God in Genesis 15, 6, which is 14 years before he was circumcised in Genesis 17. So when was he justified? Before he was circumcised or after? Well, clearly before he was circumcised. So circumcision had no part, no contribution to him being declared righteous. Righteous by God. 
And so Abraham, again, did not have that distinct mark of Jewish circumcision when he was declared righteous by God through faith. In fact, you might even say he was more Gentile at that point than he was Jewish. Now, that wouldn't have sat very well with a Jewish reader. But the truth of the matter was is that his righteousness was declared to him before he was circumcised. Now, let's move on to verse 11 and verse 12. Because I think it answers the question, well, why circumcision then? What was the point of circumcision? And again, you remember, Paul is dealing with both Jewish and Gentile reader. And for the Jewish reader, they're thinking, well, then, well, then what was the point? You just basically shot out this very important part of our upbringing, which is circumcision on the eighth day. So what was the purpose for it then? Why even, why even do it then? And so Paul is, is going to explain that. And what he's going to explain in the process is, is something that's very important for you and for I. And this is where we come into the picture. Because Abraham's fatherhood is not a physical fatherhood in God's estimation. And, you know, we sing a song. A lot of times our kids sing songs in, in Sunday school, Father Abraham. Father Abraham has many sons. And, and we march, and, and we're excited about that. And you know, that even if you're not of Jewish, Jewish heritage, you can be a child of Abraham. And that's what the scriptures teach. And that's what these verses here teach. Now, the Jews never thought of it that way. The Jew, you had to have a physical lineage all the way back up to Abraham to qualify to be his child. And they took great pride in that position. And so Paul is about to just knock them over, if you want to say it that way, in what he's about to say. Because we've got to understand that Abraham was not justified because he was circumcised. He was circumcised because he was justified. We've got to keep that order in play here. And so as we look at verse 11, let's read it. And he, speaking of Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So notice that Abraham did indeed receive circumcision. But it was not to obtain righteousness. That's what Paul is putting forth here. Circumcision is described in two ways. And one of the ways being described is not to get righteousness. This had nothing to do with his righteousness. In fact, it's described um, in a couple of ways here. The first way it's described is as a sign. Uh, a sign means a mark, uh, a token, something that's designated, something that's distinguished or known. You know, we, we use signs in our day to point to something, right? This sign points over here. This sign points over here. And sometimes you get signs and you don't know what they're pointing at. We were hiking on a mountain trail um, in, in the mountains, the, the Blue Ridge Mountains last week, and we came up to a sign on the path, and I couldn't tell what arrow was going well. I didn't know if we were going down the hike that took us 7.1 miles down a road we didn't want to, or if it was actually taking us where we were trying to go because the arrows were all off. But circumcision here was a sign to point to something. And in Abraham's case, it was a design to point to his faith. This seal of circumcision was a sign to point to his faith. And you know, one thing we know about circumcision, um, even as we read through the Old Testament and through history, it was a distinguishing feature of a Jew. It distinguished the Jewish people from every other Gentile people in the world. It was designed, like this picture, for them to be a light to the world. They had 
the oracles of God. They had the word of God. They knew the God of the universe. They knew how to approach the God of the universe. And they were designed and set apart distinctively, one, by using this sign of circumcision as having the way to the one true God. And they should have stood out that way. And Abraham, his circumcision functioned in this way. Now, Unfortunately, for most of Jewish history, it hasn't functioned this way. In fact, this sign has been more of an exclusive seal, an exclusive club that they've kept Gentiles away or pushed them out. You see this illustrated in the Gospels when they refer to Gentiles as dogs, not worthy. I can't eat with them. I can't touch them. Not this idea that this was a sign of their faith in God and his solution to the sin problem. We see that this circumcision was also referred to in a second way. In verse 11, it was referred to as a seal of the righteousness of faith. And when we look at seals, we know that seals were um, instrument for sealing letters or books. And they were really designed for the sake of privacy, the sake of security. Um, it guaranteed the contents. You know, it's very important, especially in these days when, when battles were being fought. If, if a general sent an order to another general, he sent it by courier. If that seal was intact, then the... Then the Reporting sergeant knew that he was getting the right message from the general to do. But if that seal had been tampered with, I can't trust the contents. I don't know what's going in there. And so figuratively, this, this idea of seal came to represent a promissory token, a, a pledge or proof that what was in was, was genuine. And so in Abraham's case, what we see specifically is that God uh, had credited righteousness to his account, that his faith was actually a, both a sign and a seal of the genuineness of the fact that he was trusting God for his righteousness, not trying to work it out on his own. And so this became a visible sign guaranteeing Abraham possessed God's righteousness. And you know what? Circumcision should have represented that for every single Jew. Should have represented that, should have been the seal should have been the sign for every Jew. But unfortunately, as we see throughout history, that act itself became more significant. And they began to trust in their circumcision to save them. And that's why when you get into the Gospels and you get Jesus meeting with one of the most religious Pharisees of the day. And you get John the Baptist, whose message was just um, ripping Pharisees apart he was criticizing them and hardcore saying they needed to change their mind. Why? Because they were doing this very thing. What? I'm circumcised. I'm a child of Abraham. Of course I'm getting into eternity. Of course I'm getting into the kingdom. And that was the Jewish mindset. They were no longer believing or trusting in God's provision for sin. They were trusting in a piece of skin that was cut from their bodies when they were eight days old. That's what they were trusting in. And so circumcision was never designed to give somebody righteousness, but rather be a seal uh, and, a, and, a, um, and a sign that one was righteous, that one was trusting in God. And so because God justified Abraham when he did, this is the beautiful thing. Abraham is qualified to be the father of all who believed. He justified him before he got circumcised. So he was uncircumcised when he was declared righteous. That means you and I as uncircumcised Gentiles can also be declared righteous the same way. David 
was justified after he was circumcised. So that means every Jew is, is justified the same way. And that's the whole point of Paul's argument. And this is why he's going through great lengths to prove this. Now, why was Abraham qualified to be the father? Because Abraham was not circumcised when God credited righteousness to his account. In fact, this is an important announcement in verse 11. Because Paul is very clear. Every Gentile, every Jew, every person on the face of the earth who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will gain God's righteousness. Notice at the end of verse 11, he says that the righteousness, uh, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. That's you and me in the word of God. He's speaking to us. That's how we get righteousness too. And you see, he's using Abraham as an example because Abraham was justified when he was still uncircumcised. And so we see, and, and, and remember, um, if you jump back up to verse 5, remember this. You, are not, you and I are not told to start behaving or start cleaning up our act or to be a good person and do ordinances to be saved. In fact, go back to verse 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. So when do you and I get justified? After we've cleaned up, after we become a good person, after we've done an ordinance like baptism, circumcision, anything you want to throw in there, is that the key to being declared righteous by God? Or does he justify ungodly people like you and me without any promise to clean up? There's no promise required there. We're ungodly. In fact, we go into Romans 5 and we see in verse 8, that God demonstrates his own love to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after you promised to clean up. Not after you promised to get baptized. Not after you promised to get circumcised, in this case with Abraham. But while you're still a sinner, while you're still ungodly. And that's the message of the gospel. And Paul is clear. This is how you and I can be declared righteous in God's sight as well. Now, verse 12, as we conclude says this, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but also who walk, uh, or, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. And so just like Gentiles can be justified the same way Abraham was, because he was justified when he was uncircumcised, Paul wants to know his, he wants his Jewish audience to know they are justified the same way when they believe not when they cut off a piece of skin. That's not the method by which to become righteous. And he wants his Jewish listeners to know that. Stop trusting in your circumcision. Stop trusting in your heritage. Stop trusting in your religion. Stop trusting in your good works. And come to God the way that Abraham, your father, came to God, which was by faith. And when you believe God, God will write righteousness down to your account. And he will never write sin on your account. Again, and, and Paul is emphasizing this for his Jewish listeners. Jews are physical descendants of Abraham, but that, again, was never good enough to gain them and righteousness needed to enter into heaven. They needed a spiritual birth, and we see that in our little friend Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He needed a spiritual birth. His physical birth wasn't enough. His heritage wasn't enough. And Paul, again, is just coming at this same concept over and over and over again from different angles to persuade, to convince us so that we are confident 
um, in God's salvation. But then he says this, in his footsteps, what does he mean? How do you, uh, as verse 12 says, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. How do you walk in the steps of the faith? Well, um, the word walk here just means to stand or go in order to advance in rows or ranks. I think what we would say is they need to follow in Abraham's footsteps. What did Abraham do to get the righteousness of God? Well, he trusted God. He, he quit trying and he trusted. He believed God and God wrote down righteousness to our account. And so that's the same exact way that we obtain righteousness is as we walk in the, in the steps of faithful Abraham. And so again, I, 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 we, we conclude today's message and just say, Paul is laying a foundation. <laughs> He's repeating himself. He's coming at this thing from different angles, because by the time we get to the superstructure, you and I have to be clear on this. Because also Colossians 2 6 says that as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And so if there's any lack of clarity in your foundation as to how you get saved, there, there's going to be fog in your mind as to how to live the Christian life. It will not connect or make sense because the same way that you got saved by faith is the same way that you and I are to live by faith. And when we start to get into the details of how that looks, that's when the fog sets in for many. Because they've never taken the time to navigate the book of Romans, the first four and a half chapters, and get solid on their foundation. And so I appreciate your patience um, in doing so. In fact, um, what we're going to see next week is Paul is going to approach this from a different angle. Now he's going to tell us that Abraham was justified before the law. Okay, well, that's, that's, pretty, that's easy to see because he's justified in Genesis 15. The law is not given until Exodus 20. And so we're going to see that he's going to emphasize that. And then uh, as we finish chapter 4, Paul is going to get us into Abraham's mindset. What was he thinking? What was he thinking? And we're going to see that Abraham, he uses this word, was persuaded. So he was, he was confident that what God said he was able also to perform. And I think the other thing we need to take away from us today is that the same way that Abraham got righteousness is the same way you and I get righteousness. And Abraham didn't walk the aisle of a church. Abraham didn't ask Jesus into his heart. Abraham didn't commit his life to to God. He didn't ask Jesus to come into his life. He didn't make a promise. He didn't even get baptized. He believed. He believed. And see, this is written for our understanding because this is the same way that we get saved today. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray you'd bless... uh, uh, the word and nourish the hearts uh, of those who, who need this message from uh, a perspective that they are not confident that their sins are forgiven. And I pray that you would persuade them and convince them to put their faith in Jesus alone and what he did for them by dying for their sins and rising again. Uh, for those of us who, who know this truth, who are secure in this truth, I pray that um, reflecting on what you've done would just be a time of worship for us as we, in our thinking, exalt what Jesus did for us. And as we bask in the glory and know that this is something that we're going to sing about in eternity, may we just get started worshiping uh, him right now for what he's done and all that he accomplished on that cross. And then rising again from the dead, conquering death on our behalf. And so we're just uh, grateful 
uh, to you for your word and the opportunity to study. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.